Hello everyone, this is the sixth episode of Bible Beyond, and today we're going to take a look at the Lord's Prayer. The passage is Matthew 6, 9-13. It says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer that most Christians know and oftentimes do pray. But something that many people may not see is that Jesus here is providing us with this layout, an instruction for prayer. The prayer isn't supposed to be something that we recite when we have nothing else to say to God. It's actually a prayer that is supposed to lead us in what to talk about with God. So today we're going to be breaking down each component of this prayer and explaining how it's intended to be used. All this and more on Bible Beyond. Prayer, I think, in its most simple form, is our way of talking to God. And on the surface, this seems like a simple task, because talking is something that we do all the time. In fact, the average person speaks over 15,000 words a day. And speech is also something that typically comes naturally to us. As children, we learn how to talk by listening to others, and eventually our minds just piece together the language we're trying to learn. Communication is something that we not only frequently engage in, but it's also something that comes very naturally to us. Now, it's a good thing that speaking is so easy, because our speaking to God is so crucial for our lives. Prayer is our way of communicating with God, and without it we have no way to commune with Him. But even though prayer is important and the act of speaking comes to us so naturally, a lot of the time we struggle with prayer. And this seems odd considering how easy talking it is with fellow people. And this seems odd considering how easy talking is with fellow people. I know that some of us are more introverted or extroverted, and that can affect how much we talk, but generally... We talk to multiple people each day, and oftentimes for long durations of time. So why do we sometimes avoid doing the same with God? Why is it that although we can talk to people in our everyday lives, we neglect to do the same with God? I think that one of the reasons why we struggle with prayer comes down to who it is we're talking to. When we talk to the people in our everyday lives, there really isn't much to worry about. You're comfortable talking to them because you know them, and you have experience communicating with them. But when the person you're talking to isn't just an acquaintance of yours, but the God of the universe, you're likely to be a lot more intimidated. And intimidation is really what this comes down to. 
when you're speaking with someone who knows everything about you before you even tell him, it's so easy to feel like you just don't know where to start. Now, I'm sure that there are many other issues that could keep someone from prayer, not just intimidation. But I do think that it's a big problem for a lot of Christians. I think that a lot of the time we get caught up in the question of, what would I even say to God? And if we don't know what to say to God, we never start. And therefore, we never pray. What should provide us with hope, however, is that God recognizes this inability to communicate with him. And he doesn't just leave us without a solution. No, he, he provides us with a solution in Romans 8.26, which says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Notice that it doesn't say every so often when we aren't sure what to pray, God may help us out by using his Spirit. No, it's It says that we don't know how to pray as we ought. We're incapable of proper prayer. We don't know how to pray to God Almighty by ourselves. And if this is the case, and I have to mention, it's no wonder that we struggle with prayer. I mean, God basically has to orchestrate a miracle every time we come to pray. It shouldn't come to us as a surprise when we struggle with this. And interestingly, The apostles seem to be in the same position that we find ourselves in. Because Jesus only tells them this prayer when they ask, Jesus, tell us how to pray. It's at that point at which they receive this prayer. Only when they're lost and confused and don't know how to pray with God. But once again, God doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just end the story with a sad and useless ending. He actually continues to provide us with another way, another solution to the problem. And Jesus' response to the disciples' dilemma is the Lord's Prayer. Now, before we dive into each part of this prayer and what it all means, I want to clarify what this prayer is and what this prayer is not. First, let's look at what this prayer is not. This prayer is not the only possible way to pray. It is not a universal prayer. This is not the only way to talk to God. And we know this because Jesus says in verse 9, Pray then like this. But the important word to remember here is the word like. He doesn't say pray this exact prayer. He says pray like this or in a similar way to this. We know this further because Jesus himself did not only pray these exact words. He didn't just ask God to provide his disciples with bread. In John chapter 9, Jesus prays that his disciples would be steadfast. He prays that they would be sanctified in the word. He prays that they would be kept safe from the devil. He doesn't just pray that they would be well fed. No, his his prayers are much more specific than that. So this is to just make clear that this is not the only way to pray. There is no rule that says, if we don't recite these exact words, we can't pray. That's not the case in the slightest. And we know this to be true because of the language Jesus uses to describe the prayer and the fact that Jesus himself did not pray exactly like this. This prayer is also not to be used as a mantra. 
we aren't supposed to recite it just like robots, just so we can get our daily praying over with. In fact, I didn't include this in our passage, but in the verse prior to this prayer, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 7-8, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The point of this is that we're not supposed to say things to God that we don't actually mean. God wants us to be sincere in our intentions, whatever they may be. Now, there is a caveat to this which should be taken into account. It's entirely possible to pray the exact words in the Lord's Prayer ten times a day, every day, for the rest of your life and mean every single word of it. That's entirely possible. And it's by no means sinful to recite the Lord's Prayer if we mean what we're saying. The problem is that we should only pray the words that we mean to pray. So if this prayer is not a mantra that we recite, and it isn't the only way to pray, then what is it? Well, we know that it's not a mantra, and we shouldn't just pray it as a formality, but we also know that Jesus commands us to use this prayer. So I believe that there is a middle ground where we can pray this prayer every day like Jesus tells us to, but while still praying genuinely. The way that we can do this is by treating this prayer as an outline. It's a guideline for how we can pray. So instead of just taking the words and only reciting them, we expand on what they mean and we talk about what it might mean to us in our lives. At the end of this, I'm going to give a thorough example of how we would do this, but for now let's just go through each part of the prayer and examine what it means. First, let's start off with verse 9, which says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I've always been fascinated by the way that a father child relationship works, and especially how it relates to us and God. See, the relationship between a father and child is one of the most complex that we can experience, and yet it's wonderful to experience, and even more wonderful to have with God. The reason I say that a father-child relationship is complex is because there are many different aspects to it. First of all, there's the employer-employee relationship. The father being the employer and the kid being the employee. And while the son or daughter doesn't typically get paid by the father, the child is told what to do by the father and is expected to do this. In the time in which this passage is written, this may have meant helping to farm or helping the parents with chores. And in our modern day world, there are still responsibilities that our dads expect us to fulfill. We have to take out the trash and do the dishes and do our homework. The Father instructs us to do something, and we are expected to fulfill it. The father-child relationship can also be a teacher-student relationship, with the father being the teacher and the child being the student. The father has the responsibility of teaching the child what they need to know and understand before he goes on to a career and a family and eventually being a father himself. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And this is the father's responsibility. It is his responsibility as a parent 
to prepare the child for everyday life. It's also worth noting that the child has the responsibility of listening to the father and obeying what he says. Lastly, this relationship is one of friendship. Now, I I don't want you to make the mistake of treating God like your best buddy and nothing more, because he's far too great to be quantified as only a friend. However, there does exist the aspect of the father-child relationship where there is love between them. And it's very important. It's the entire reason that the father teaches and cares for the child. And in this case of God, it's the reason why he sends his own son to die for us. It's like the glue that keeps their relationship together. And because of how vast God's love is, it makes us inseparable. So that's what a father does. And the next part of the verse states, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be regarded as holy. And this means that we're supposed to regard him as a holy father. In this verse, we say that his name is holy. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah gets to see firsthand God's holiness. In Isaiah 6, 1-3, the Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'd just like to say that this vision that Isaiah has is a sight to behold. Here is the God of the universe in his temple with angels all around him and these mystical creatures singing to God about his holiness. His holiness is what makes God so magnificent and wonderful, and as such, we should regard him and his name as holy. Now, the end goal of creation is for everyone, even the very stones of the earth, to regard God as holy and to recognize his goodness. However, as of now, we only really have control over our own perception of God. If we were to threaten people to make them recognize God, well, that obviously would not be biblical. So for now, we can only choose to regard him as holy ourselves. And in the next verse, we're commanded to pray for the day that God will come to earth and make himself and his holiness known to everyone. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. For context, In Revelation, we're told that there will be a new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven to earth so that God and man can dwell together. John says in Revelation 10, 1 through 3, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. For God himself will be with them as their God. It really is amazing that after God sacrifices his only son, 
so the man and God can be reunited. He goes one step further and takes his heavenly kingdom to us. He takes it down to earth where we reside. He didn't have to do that. He could just teleport us up to heaven and come live with him. But he goes the extra mile, you could say, and takes this kingdom to us. Just another gift of God. And what's important for us to do is to pray for this to happen. We're supposed to pray for him to bring his kingdom to us. And we're also supposed to pray for his will to be done while God's kingdom is not here. So the question becomes, what is God's will? Well, I think that one of the most important aspects of God's will and what God desires to happen is for everyone to be brought back to God. We know this because, well, it's the entire reason why Christ came and died for us. He didn't come because he liked being crucified. He came because he wanted heaven and earth, God and man, to be reunited for eternity. And even before Jesus comes, when God creates the Garden of Eden, he makes it so that God and man can interact with one another. So it's safe to say that one major part of God's will is for everyone to be saved. And we can pray for that. We can pray for the people in our everyday lives to be exposed to God's will, and that God would lead them back to him according to his will. This is always something that we should pray, and it's always something that needs to be prayed. We always need to draw closer to God. Now, up to this point in the prayer, we're praying about God and his kingdom, and him as a father, and people being saved. But then this prayer takes a noticeable turn as we now start to pray about practical things in our daily lives. I won't say that either half of this prayer is more important than the other. It's just we go from praying about the divine to the more earthly current topics, albeit in the context of God and heaven and such. Verse 11 does this when it says, Give us this day our daily bread. In biblical days, a major part of people's diet was bread. And today it may seem weird to go to God Almighty and ask for something as simple as bread, but back then bread was mainly what people ate. How much food someone had was largely dependent on how much bread that they had. And when they pray for bread, they aren't just praying necessarily for food. They're asking that God would give them what they need. We may pray specifically about having food to eat, but more importantly, the bread represents the daily necessities that we need in order to live. Now, what's great is that we can ask God for the things that we need. Matthew 7:11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know what's really interesting? In this verse, Matthew 7:11, we're told to ask God for what we need mainly because he is a good father. And not by coincidence, the Lord's Prayer has previously told us to regard and to treat God as our father. I don't believe that this is a coincidence. I believe like all of scripture, this prayer is expertly laid out for us. And the reason why we can ask God for what we need why we have that privilege is because he is a good father. The point that Matthew 7:11 demonstrates is that if earthly fathers who 
are sinful, are capable and willing to give their children gifts and what they need, how much more will God do for his children? How much more will God, who knows everything about good gifts, God who knows exactly what you need, and God who is capable of delivering anything that he desires, how much better of a sustainer and provider is God? He's an excellent one. He's the best provider. So much so that he is our only true provider. That's how wonderful and marvelous he is. And that is why we should and can ask him for what we need. Continuing on with this prayer, we have verse 12, which says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For a Christian, there are two areas that we have to focus on concerning forgiveness. The first is receiving forgiveness from God. The second is giving forgiveness to those who need it. And these are inexplicably intertwined. Something that may stick out to you in this verse is that it says, As we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the only place in the prayer where we who are praying it assume an act of righteousness. The rest of the prayer we pray about, Yay, God is our Father, and please protect us from evil, and I really hope that your kingdom comes. But here, the speaker of the prayer states, not asks or thanks, but states their own righteousness. And this doesn't seem to fall into the attitude of the prayer. In fact, at first glance, this can seem like showing pride, like we're going to God and asserting our own righteousness and goodness. How absurd is that? But Jesus isn't telling us to brag or anything, because receiving forgiveness from God and giving forgiveness are tied together. You can't have one without the other. I'll tell you why this is. First of all, let's take the part that says, forgive us our debts. If God forgives our debts, what happens to us? When we're forgiven of our debts, we draw closer to God. That's the point of Christ dying and rising up again, so that humanity and God can be brought together. And what should happen when we draw close to God? When we draw close to God, we're filled with love. Love for God and therefore love for others. The reason why we're filled with love when we draw close to God is because God himself is love. 1 John 4.8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. What this means is that those who are with God and have been saved and forgiven are then given the ability to love, because God is love. And therefore, we can forgive. On the flip side, anyone who can forgive and accept others must have been forgiven and saved by God because God is love. So you see now, there's no way to have one without the other. You can't forgive your debtors if you don't have the love of God in you. And there's no way that you can have the love of God in you if you don't forgive. And it goes the other way too. The more filled you are with God's love, the easier it is to forgive. And if we can forgive, we must have the love of God. And that's what the prayer means when it talks about forgiveness. 
The last part of the prayer states, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If God's salvation and forgiveness brings us closer to him, it's sin and evil that keeps us apart. Sin is the entire reason why we need God's grace, because our hearts and our lives have been infested with sin and evil. But even when we become Christians and are saved from our sin, we still have to contend with evil. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This may seem like a somber picture, the fact that we're being sought after by a lion, but what's important to remember is that God is greater than the evil we have to deal with in this world. And because he's our father, he hasn't left us defenseless. He has given us the tools we need to resist evil. Ephesians 6, 13-18 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. God has given us what we need to resist evil, but we must pray to God for those tools and for protection in our daily lives. Now, with all of that said, now that we know about what the Lord's Prayer is, and now that we've examined every part of it, I want to offer an example of how this can be used. I mentioned earlier that this prayer is a great framework for what we want to say to God, and it's a wonderful resource to have if we feel lost and unsure of what to say. So as we close in prayer today, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer and put these principles into practice. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, we're so thankful that you're our Father and that we get to experience the kind of father-child relationship that we have together. Thank you for being able to teach us, to love us, to care for us just as an earthly father would, but also with the omnipotence and power and knowledge that you hold. It's a great, profound relationship that we get to have, and we're so thankful for it. And hallowed be your name. God, we know that your name is holy. Your word says that you are holy. And we want to regard you as holy too, just like the angels do in Isaiah's vision. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And we also pray that you would bring your holiness down to us, because it's the one thing that we desire most in life. We know from the book of the Revelation that you will do this, but we, we do pray that you would bring it to us, God. Thank you for promising to go the extra mile and to actually take it down to us. It's very gracious, and we're so thankful for it. 
But as for now, we obviously don't have Jerusalem yet. So until that time comes, we ask that you would execute your will. We know that your will is good and that you want everyone to be saved and to know you. And there are so many people out there who don't know about that goodness and that redemption that you offer. And yet they are seeking it, God. So please reach out to them and bring them closer to you, draw them closer to you and all of your glory. And give us this day our daily bread. There are, a lot, there are a lot of things that we do need and that we need you to continue to provide for us, God. Not just bread, but also whatever it is that we might need. If it's protection or guidance or knowledge about something, if it's medical care, please give it to us when we need it, God. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We make a lot of mistakes. We sin a lot, and we need your grace continually. So please just give us that grace and forgiveness that we need so that we can go and forgive others, so that we can draw closer to your love and therefore have the ability to forgive our neighbors and those who need it. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know that there is a lion that's roaming about and seeks to devour us, and that is very scary, but please make sure that we're protected from that. Please, when we do encounter evil, please rescue us and carry us out of that, even when it looks bad, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been the sixth episode of Bible Beyond. A huge thank you to my grandfather for creating the great music that you're listening to right now. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, check back with us on the first of every month, when we'll have a new episode up and ready. As of now, have a great day.